Hey fam, thanks for checking this little recording out. If you're listening to this, it means you must have attended a talk, workshop, or even a class of mine that I recorded, and you want to get the nitty gritty. That's great. Excellent. If you're just being snoopy and you're trying to figure things out, it's all good. My name's Dan White Hodge. I'm an educator, and you're about to learn something today. Thanks again for following up, and I truly hope this adds an enrichment to you and your work. As always, hit me up if you got them questions at whitehodge.com and check out my podcast while you're at it, Profane Faith. I'll talk with you later. Peace. From North Park University, we'll be speaking on post-industrial ministry, understanding and engaging the urban-suburban blend while moving away from the great white folks ethos. Uh, I've known Ben for a few years now, our paths have crossed through um, Urban Youth Workers Institute and other conferences, CCDA, and uh, privileged to have him at his first AYME conference, and so welcome, Dan, and welcome to this session. Uh, there you go. There you go. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it, uh, Tommy. Uh, Tommy and I have known, like I said, we've known each other for a while. And this is, I've heard of AYME. I do want to make the, the record be known that I have heard of AYME, but prior to getting to North Park, I had, I mean, we still have limited funds, but I really had limited funds in the past. And so I had to choose between like six different other conferences. And so uh, Greg Motor is a good friend of mine, and he was always encouraging me to come. And I'm finally glad to have you know, submitted something and gotten it accepted, and I was going to come regardless, but I was even happier that something got uh, accepted, and so uh, I have much respect for what the work is being done here, and to actually have a space to talk about some of these issues, especially in in uh, organizations sometimes, not that North Park is a place, bad place or anything like that, but you know, it's kind of, you kind of always have to explain, okay, what do you do again in youth ministry, and they're just teaching about Bible, aren't they, I mean, but don't we have a BTS or a Biblical Theological Study, I'm like, no, we do a little bit more than just that, um, but anyways, this is, uh, this is something um, that has been on my mind for quite a while now. Um, uh, I have been in youth ministry now for uh, about uh, 18 years. I've worked uh, both in urban suburban contexts. Uh, I started with Young Life and uh, uh, had my own kind of uh, <laughs> had my own kind of uh, actually. And even prior to that, we had started a nonprofit ministry uh, in the city back in the mid 90s. Uh, I'm from the West Coast actually. I'm in Chicago now, but I'm from the West Coast. Uh, started in the Bay and then went down to Southern California, uh, and we were at a school that Young Life just couldn't get anything going, and so they kind of brought us on and gave us a little funding, and then that, of course, transpired into me becoming area director and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then I went on to church ministry and then that for a while, and then, then went back to nonprofit, then back to the church, and so it's kind of been this kind of tennis match, and uh, I find myself now being an, like, what I like to call a free agent uh, of youth ministry, and uh, especially in Chicago, trying to take root and trying to figure out, okay, what are we going to give our too, but I'm passionate about kids. Um, and, you know, in Chicago, there we got all kind of youth issues. Just last weekend alone, we had 16 killed, 15 killed, excuse me, uh, in the South Side alone. Uh, over the summer, we had over 215 deaths uh, from June to July, uh, and these were all uh, children under the age of 18. Uh, and a lot of them were seven and eight year olds who got caught in the crossfire, unfortunately. Uh, just horrible, horrible stories. Um, uh, and I feel like 
God has called me to this arena of working with kids and met my wife in Young Life as well. Uh, you know, and I always, I always was against that. I was like, no, I'm not going to meet her in Young Life. No, 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 no. And sure enough, she was doing uh, stuff out in the Twin Cities. And uh, we met in Colorado, of all places. And so uh, here we find ourselves. And now we have a little five-year-old girl. She's going on six. And uh, I'm a parent of an actual kid in CPS, you know, Chicago Public Schools. And so uh, it's interesting navigating that because I've had kids that live with me and I've interacted with them and walk through them to graduation, but it's a little different when you have a biological kid going through the system uh, and, you know, what's happening. So we're going to be a part of the PTA and showing up and volunteering and all that good stuff. But anyways, this is something positive um, that we, I want to engage with. And I know AYME is more dialogical, so I'll talk a little bit, but I really do want to engage in a conversation. I mean, the paper's up online. You can read it. And so I'm not going to read that word for word. I'm mainly going to kind of expunge from it some of the bigger highlights from that. So you can kind of pull that up on your own. Um, uh, but this is something that my wife is white, and I'm black and Mexican, African-American and Mexican, and so multi-ethnicity, uh, multiculturalism is something that has gone very, very far in our lives. To give you a little background on myself, uh, I was raised in a Mexican family by my mom. My mom, uh, to give you a little background on her, was during the 60s, late 60s, was one of the first. She was living in uh, Berkeley at the time during the late 60s, and you know anything about the late 60s in Berkeley? <laughs> There were some interesting things happening at that time in that part of the country. And so she was one of the first Latino women admitted into the Black Panther Party uh, during that time. So I grew up in kind of this vestige, if you will, of understanding community and that well, everything that you do should go back to community and go back to the people. Uh, and so growing up with that, uh, I grew up in Texas. Actually, this is, I was born in this state, uh, about six hours southwest of here in a little town called Menard, Texas. And uh, a little context for that, that place was an interesting place in sixth grade, um, uh, a friend of mine, I always tell this story, I got to tell it again, uh, in sixth grade, a friend of mine got dressed up for the Halloween dress-up contest as a Ku Klux Klan member and won first place. And so that kind of gives you the broad kind of spectrum of what uh, was going on in that town. Uh, I was very rarely accepted by my, the Mexican half of my family. My mom was the only one who brought in the African-American element into our Mexican household. Haven't seen my dad since July 18, 1982, uh, and so I'm still on a search looking for him. And so these are all subjects and themes of mine that have kind of occurred in my own life uh, that I tend to, you know, try to interact with and struggle with in my own ministry and in a lot of the kids uh, that I work with. And multiculturalism, multi-ethnicity is a, is a big thing. Um, I, 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 I've been in the hood, was in the hood, grew up in the hood, was in the 92 uh, LA uprisings in April 29th, uh, later joined the Nation of Islam for a few years as well, so I was with them. So very militant during that time. So the fact that I'm actually married to a white woman, uh, just that's the testi testimony of what God does and changes our lives and changes our hearts, and I had to go kind of a long process of dealing with my own nationalism and racism. I do believe racism in two parts. There's the ideology to it. There's also the systemic part of it. So the ideological part I had to, you know, deal with it, and still continue to deal with it, and still continue to engage with it, and look at these areas in all areas. Um, part of the stuff that I used to do in, in Los Angeles was work with undocumented, first-generation Mexican and Nicaraguan-American kids uh, coming from those respective countries and engaging, you know, with how do I live in a country that says I shouldn't be here, but I didn't decide to come here. Been here since I was one, two years old, uh, but now what do I do? Uh, in fact, I'm heading back to LA. A couple of them are graduating this year from community college, and so we need some interesting conversations. So that's really kind of the context for this understanding. Uh, and then been to youth specialties a few times, and uh, they've asked me to do 
workshops on urban suburban blend, um, you know, and talking from people from the middle of Iowa, and North Dakota, uh, you know, and to see the the rise of hip hop in those places, you know, you places that you would unsuspectingly think, you know, like, well, there's no Dr. Dre in this area. How do you know about Lil Wayne in this particular area? I mean, you are in Podunk, Iowa, right? There's corn all around you, right? Or potatoes in Iowa, uh, no, no, or Idaho. Uh, excuse me, uh, but no, 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 that's not the case. The uh, you know something like hip hop is growing, the urbanization has really grown a lot, and so we have really, as Greg Tate uh, argues in a lot of his works, talks about really the, the blackening, if you will, or the urbanening, if you will, uh, of society and culture. So we're going to kind of walk through uh, some of that uh, today. So again, the genesis for this project, uh, this is a, uh, a book on review with Baker Academic, The Myth of Multiculturalism, uh, Beyond Trends and Into the Heart of Diversity, uh, in which I kind of make this, this uh, ultimate argument. Hopefully they'll accept it. Uh, I'm hoping now. I'm working with Bob Hosack. He's a good He's a great guy. Um, and so um, it's, it's just really the, uh, I'm really trying to, 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 to engage in these issues and move beyond just the idea that says, you know, we can, we can only, you know, missions, like I was just talking with Terry Elton, I said, you know, that mission groups is only a mission trip, you know, but what does it really mean to be missiological in our youth groups? Um, Deals with the racial uh, and meta-narrative of the Great White Hope and missions in urban youth men context. Uh, this comes out of another area, a good friend of mine who does uh, urban ministry in Seattle. Um, was telling me, you know, the story. This was a few years ago, which kind of again prompted me to start really looking at this. He was like, you know, Dan, for many years, he said, this, you know, very white suburban affluent church would come and do mission work with us in the inner city. He said, but over the years, our group has grown and flourished in the gospel, and you know, grown in Christ. Whereas you've almost seen the teetering of, you know, the other side of it, you know, his group was a little bit more Gnostic per se, and, you know, a little bit more of what Kinder Kesey Dean and Christian Smith are talking about, this moralistic therapeutic deism, right? You know, he said, so he flipped it one year on him and he just said, hey, what if we came out to you guys and did some mission work with you guys? Uh, and to this day, it's been seven years since we had that conversation, to this day that guy will not return a phone call of his because he said, you know, why do we need that? We don't need this. And so this idea that we're really in a position of power, really in a position of authority, why would we want you people to come over here and do stuff with us? And so that's part of it as well. So there's, again, this neocolonialism uh, and white hegemony, if you will, you know, within youth ministry, particularly when you start thinking about resources and funding, at least for the last 22 years. Most kids have been enraptured with hip-hop and urban culture, urban popular culture. Um, but the curriculum continues to reflect more of a kind of, you know, an affluent, suburban, upper-middle-class type of resource and curriculum. And so uh, I, for one, uh, you know, have, you know, just a little bit of issues with that when we start thinking about what this looks like. And this is kind of what this book deals with, and this is kind of just an, abs an extract, if you will, from that ongoing book and dialogue in, in that conversation. Uh, and then lastly, the multi-ethnic hope. And this is really what I'm pushing for. You know, as we all know, the U.S. composition racially, ethnically is changing. Uh, and so, you know, how do we prepare for that? I mean, L.A. alone is moving past the 53 percentile marker of Latinos. Now, granted, that covers the gamut of Latinos, but nevertheless, 53 percent out of 3.8 million people that live within the Los Angeles city limit alone, that's a lot of people. <laughs> and that's not including the 17.8 that live within Los Angeles County. And that, you know, of course, that's not including Riverside and Orange County as well, which we all know. Simi Valley, I don't know if you guys remember Simi Valley, which was back in the day, that was where the Rodney King trial was held. Very white, affluent neighborhood right back in the 90s, now predominantly Latino. You know? And so how do we deal with these changes? You know, One of the conversations that I've had with a lot of white suburban pastors is how do I deal with the browning and the blackening of my youth group? What do I do with that? 
you know, and how do I really effectively engage with it? I just had a conversation with a youth pastor uh, two weeks ago. He started uh, working with an agency that wanted to have his kids, or ha wanted to work with a, a juvenile facility that was going to have his church and organization be a, a pathway for kids transitioning out. Great thing. Get a couple of parents that complain, and now he wants to kind of segregate that group from the rest of the group. And I was like, no, 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 no man. I said, I think that's, you have to engage those tensions. And so, uh, uh, and you know, not that you want you know stuff to pop off, but how do we push past just eating each other's food and wearing each other's garbs? I'm ready to move beyond that. Okay, that's not multiculturalism to me because I just only laugh. I mean, it's the thing on college campuses, right? You have a multicultural unlearned week. Almost every Christian evangelical school has something like that. We eat each other's foods and then we go back to our respective corners. And I'm I'm tired of that conversation. I want to live in this. And in multiculturalism, it is messy. Because I tell all my students in intercultural communication, when you're doing good intercultural communication, you're very frustrated and irritated with what's going on. So that's the genesis. Let's keep moving on. Youth ministry in context. I think we talked about this. This has been a socio... Uh, societal shift during the 80s. This is Bakari Kitwana and a lot of his uh, writings. The urban world is all around us. When you think about what has happened in just uh, film and television over the past 30 years, think about films like I ask my students all the time, you know, I'm sure you guys would know this, but I take, ask them about good times. I mean, because, you know, remember good times, right? Yeah, good times, right? And so, you know, some students are like, well, you know, what's that? Dynamite, right, you know? And now being from Chicago, you know, that was Cabrini Greens, which no longer exists, but, you know, that was, that was, that was it right there. Uh, you know, what's happening? I don't know. That's, that's really going back there. That's really dating myself there, you know, with Rerun and those whole guys and his dance and everything. Not very many people knew about that. Different strokes. Now we're moving in the 80s, you know, late 70s, 80s. Okay, Gary Coleman, God rest his soul, almost everybody on that show is dead, except for Willis. You know, he's still, he's still up and running. Um, then Roseanne. Roseanne also kind of engages these issues because Roseanne was one of the first shows that engaged gender and class in the same type of, of connotation. What do you deal with working class women? How do you engage this? How do you deal with the ghetto white element of the United States? And we're starting to see more and more of that, especially with this economic shift, right? The idea of poverty and justice is, you know, coming up a lot. Right. And so Roseanne was talking about this, you know, 20 some odd years ago. You know, I, I mean, I appreciate Roseanne, not everything she does, but I appreciate <laughs> Roseanne for what she kind of brings and wants to push these conversations further. Now we get into the Cosby show. A lot of us remember the Cosby show, right? You know, Bill Cosby, intellectual, he's a doctor, Claire, you know, she's a, she's a lawyer. So now we see some sophisticated, articulate African-American images. But here's a show that really did it in for this generation. And that was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. That was really what gave white America a real hard lens into, you know, black America. And what Quincy Jones and Casey Warner were after, the producers of this show, were really, again, you know, bridging this gap. You know, uh, Casey Warner was, you know, one of the same producer with, uh, with Bill Cosby, right? And so I'm kind of going through the media side because that's kind of where our, our kids are at, right? That's what they see. I mean, almost every suburban kid I start off with, like, you know, in West Philadelphia, born and raised, they can finish that rap for me. They know it, right? And here's the thing, what was happening at the same time, 1989, Will Smith, DJ Jazzy Jeff won the first Grammy, okay, for hip-hop and rap. It essentially killed the conversation that said hip-hop and rap is just noise, right? Up until that point, we were like, oh, that's just a, that's just a phase. People will you'll get out of it soon enough. It'll be over in five years. Well, they won a Grammy, and then from then on, you know, the rest is history. And so Fresh Prince of Bel-Air was really a pivotal show uh, in race relations. And they engaged a lot of these issues. Carlton being the more educated, as some would say, whitewashed, you know. You had Hillary, who was also a little bit more, you know, affluent. You know, but then you had Ashley, who was still trying to kind of grapple. Well, I'm younger, and I want to grasp my roots, but I'm living in Bel-Air. I mean, Bel-Air is an interesting place. 
I just, I mean, just give you some context on that. I mean, it's a very, I mean, there is a school of belly. I had a friend of mine who, who got a, who's African-American. They needed some color. They gave her a scholarship. She ended up going. And so I'm showing up to a fundraiser. I mean, how would you guys like to go to this fundraiser? Let me give you the setting. I show up to this fundraiser, uh, and I'm looking over. I'm like, man, you know, I'm an old, you know, 70s rock kind of guy. I said, man, that looks like Fogarty. What's Fogarty? His kids go here, right? And I'm looking over, and I'm like... And that looks like the drummer from the Eagles. I'm like, it is. That's him. You know? I was like, then I was like, you gotta be kidding me. I said, you got you. That's not Stevie Wonder. And sure enough, his kids go there, and all of them are playing this concert, and they were raising money over 1.2 million dollars. You know what they were fixing? The driveway wasn't that good, so they needed to fix 1.2 million dollars raised for the driveway in one night. And I was talking with the, you know, kind of the person telling up the money. I was like, hey, you know, how'd you guys do that? Like, oh, we didn't do too good. You know, we didn't, we didn't do too good. I was just like, geez, 1.2 million? Are you kidding me? It almost killed me to raise 45,000, you know, in the one time, let alone 1.2. So again, this disconnect, the sociotheological or social societal shift during the 80s, uh, we really begin to kind of see really the postmodern, post-soul shift. The questioning of authority, okay, of systems and institutions, uh, the loss of trust in societal structures. We know that a lot. Um, we also have, you know, World War II, speaking of military, as the last great war. It's why we still have so many films on it. I was just at the Pop Culture Association, their conference. They had their national conference last weekend, and they have a whole group just on 9-11 and uh, post-9-11 America and, and, and pop culture. You know, and so, you know, really looking at World War II as the last great war, because the enemies were clear. Vietnam, Korean War, and especially this conflict, we're really not sure. I mean, this is what you know, Christopher Nolan is playing with in The Dark Knight. You know, like, who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy? We, we're really not sure. And that's where this generation is really at. So hip-hop has come around saying that we're going to kind of help begin to talk about these things. You know? And then you have films, and a lot of people sleep on the film Malibu's Most Wanted. I love Malibu's Most Wanted for several reasons. One, um, I know Jamie Kennedy, and I know what he was trying to do with that film. I think the producers got a hold of that film and made it into what it, you know, the, the st stupidity of it. But what he was really trying to illustrate was how can somebody who lives in total isolation in a place like Malibu completely emulate, but not only emulate, but identify with the struggle and the trials of hip-hop culture, because it's talking about, hip-hop is essentially talking about being marginalized, being oppressed. Can't tell you how many suburban students that I've had that affluent parents, but they say, you know what, I was raised by my nanny. I was raised by the person who watched me. I never really knew my father. So I'm a little angry about that. And this comes out in different ways, right? It may come out in, in different forms of what I like to call cultural resistance. You know, we all have cultural forms of resistance. And some of us do it passively in the hood. Some people do it a little more aggressively, right? Um, but hip-hop connects with that. And so Jamie Kitty and Malibu's was one. It's essentially a show about that. But you kind of got to get past some of the fluff to get it. Then, of course, the 90s media rise, that was big as well. When you start thinking about films, the hoodie films that really made it big, Dr. Dre's Chronic album was the first album in hip-hop to be marketed openly, like openly saying we are going into the suburbs and really talking about these issues. Come to find out, wow, kids in the suburbs smoke weed too, so they can identify very well with these issues. I remember I going to, a, in 1993, um, Ice-T had a group, um, and I'm forgetting it, but they had the song Cop Killer. Um, what was their nose? Anyway, I, I went to their uh, their concert in uh, the Oakland in Oakland Alameda, Oakland Alameda County Coliseum. All right, Ice T is this whole thing. It's a whole controversial thing. He was on the cover of Rolling Stone and a cop magazines. He's talking about you know killing bad cops. So I showed up and I'm seeing all these white guys, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, either I'm at the wrong venue, an event, maybe Bono's playing, maybe he's opening for you know Ice T. I don't know. But come to find out, there was all these disenfranchised. 
really white males feeling oppressed, really a lot of M&Ms running around saying, man, we are too have gotten harassed. How do we engage with this? And so Cop Killer, because it was, you know, it was really a hip-hop grunge metal band, you know, this group that was putting it on, uh, was just like, you know, they connected with that. And it became a voice. And then became, you know, that. So again, it got me kind of thinking. So this 90s media rise, and of course, 9-11 and post-9-11 America, anyone born, you know, after 90-91, they were really 10, 9, 8 years old when 9-11 happened. And so their entire life from that, they're now 20, 21, 22, has been this, the world that we live in. They don't know airports that you can, like, you know, when I proposed to my wife, you know, we did a long distance thing, you know, I proposed her at the gate in the airport with no ticket, no, very little ID. I just went right up to the gate. They actually called the plane, held her back. She came off the thing, proposed to her the whole nine, right? But you can't do that anymore. You don't know about that anymore, right? You have to have a kid. They have three-ounce containers. You know, you can't be taking them long, big old aerosol cans on blower anymore. So it's a strange world, and so we have a major shift in youth ministry and the way we understand things. And again, I'm arguing that we have to begin to embrace some of these things and change it. Let me quickly real go through this, and I want to get to the research. Rise of Black Popular Culture, we've talked a little bit about that. If you haven't read Bakari Kitwana's book, Why White Kids Love Hip Hop, Wanksters, Wiggers, Wannabes, and the New Reality of Race in America, highly recommend you go out and read that, because he's talking about a lot of these things. Um, one, he talks about the global alienation in, of white youth in the 1980s. Um, and really the look at how do we you know, alienate certain white kids and make them into certain villains. I mean, that's what I liked about um, my boy, Kurt Cobain, you know, and um, Nirvana. You know, I mean, think about Nirvana. I'm waiting for somebody to come out on a book and a theological concept and precepts of Nirvana. Because what they did for this population was give them voice. And ultimately, we're all after an area of voice, right? We're all we're trying to connect with that. Um, and so at the end of the day, this global alienation pushed kids really into hip-hop. Because again, hip-hop speaks for that. At its core, not the commercial crap that we see. Not the Nelly-ish swiping down credit cards in the backside of women. I ain't talking about that mess, all right? I'm talking about real hip-hop that Common, Kendrick Lamar, Tupac, artists like that. And Lauryn Hill, even though she's got her tax problems right now, uh, uh, nevertheless, dealing with that type of stuff. Well, a changing pop music scene, we just talked about that in the 1990s. Really shifting, if you will, culturally speaking, about what was happening in our society. You know, the fact that you had several rap albums that were number one on Billboard, that had never been seen before. You know, I used to, you know, subscribe to Rolling Stone, and in the back of Rolling Stone, I don't know if they still do this, but back in the day, they used to have what was number one 20 years ago. Yeah, I remember reading it in the 80s and looking at what was number one, and then in the 90s, what was number one. By the time you got to 2000, you start seeing some of these albums. Fear of Black Planet. You know, and you got to think, who's buying this? Because at the end of the day, if you're in the hood, and I grew up in the hood, and I grew up in a time of tape decks. I know some of you guys came through later, but I came in the era of tape decks. And we used to get the double-deck cassette player and do high-speed dubbing. All right? Kind of that, my generation's version of BitTorrent, if you will, right? So we were, we'd buy one tape and then duplicate it. But who was actually paying these $10, $15, $20 for this? Well, guess what? It's people who could actually afford it and continually buy it. And this is where these numbers were going. The economy, 2000 and beyond, we know that. We know that shift. Uh, um, institutionalizing of civil rights culture. I mean, I know uh, when I went through high school, I had about a paragraph in my history book of the civil rights movement, right? A little paragraph. Said it happened, and it was good stuff, right? All right. I guess that's late 80s coming through, right? But by the time I started teaching in the 2000s in high school, there was like a whole chapter on the civil rights movement. 
And so now MLK, who was once in the 70s and 80s considered a communist by a larger you know, parts of society, you know, he's the socialist trying to do things, now he's loved and beloved by society. So this institutionalization really gave students an, an insight like, oh, wow, there are people that struggled. I didn't, I didn't even know this was happening, you know. And so, yes, we have work, but there's an institutionalization of it. And most people at least recognize, oh, yeah, Martin Luther King dance, the day I get off in January. Okay, I get that. All right. Uh, and then lastly, of course, the impact of black population culture. We talked about that a little bit, but just the impact of it and what it meant, particularly for people uh, who were connecting with these messages and meanings. And so youth ministries have been affected by this. Um, and when I explore this a little bit more um, in, in, of course, in the book that, you know, that I'm, I'm trying to put together, and I talk a little bit about this in my current book, The Soul of Hip Hop, um, you know, kind of the post-soul, post-modern shift uh, all right, if you will, and talk a little bit about, you know, why is it that so many affluent suburban kids, you know, flock towards this type of musical genre? And of course, we know hip hop is not just a local phenomenon. It's also in Egypt. It's also places like Nairobi and places like Libya. They were just talking about the year uh, anniversary of, you know, um, Gaddafi being killed yesterday. Um, you know, but in those areas, the reason that thing was so popular is because hip hop was essentially saying, look, this is where these cats live. And power, at least in those contexts, is a little bit more visible than it is here in the States. If I ask you and show you some pictures of CEOs of Chase, Bank America, and Citicorp, most people don't know who those cats are. Whereas in Nairobi and other places, they know that's where that fool lives. You know, we're going to go over there, we're going to revolt, we're going to stand up about it. So this is, again, part of why white kids love hip-hop so much. Just part of the matrix of that. I think, was there last one? Or, oh, yes, and then when we talked about this, just a voice and identity uh, for white youth. So that's kind of just laying the kind of the rise, if you that that first section of the paper, the rise of of black popular culture and the influence of that. And so you have a group of students, whether we realize it or not, and particularly the, the folks that we train, you know, whether they realize it or not, you know, this is this is going on, and this is this and this is happening. Particularly when you start thinking about just all the shifts that were happening, just from the uh, what I like to call the civil rights generation, those born after like. But, probably 1944-45 to about 1968, you know, really that generation that a lot of people say are boomers, you know, more or less. I call them the civil rights generation, uh, along with several other scholars, Bakari Kitwana, Nelson George, Mark Anthony Neal, if you haven't read his book, Soul Babies, uh, and also his book, um, I'm forgetting uh, what the music said, also talks about this, this idea of the civil rights generation. And so this voice and identity, ending on this and then we'll move on, uh, becomes a very powerful identifying factor for a lot of white youth and suburban youth. All right, let me talk about the research and then we'll just, get, we'll just dive right into this real quick. Um, so it's qualitative. The, the research of this article is based on four urban youth students, uh, mentees of mine between the years of 2005 and 2010. Uh, two female, two males composed the gender, and Mexican-American, African-American, Caribbean, and a mixture of Euro-American composed the ethnic makeup of this group. The interviews were conducted uh, bi-monthly from 2005 to two, 2007, then five times a year after. Uh, the interviews and research began in the late summer 2005 while I finished up doctoral studies at Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, African-American, this was Sally. Now, obviously, I've changed the names, all right? They were very specific um, about me saying you can use our stories and material if you're going to try to better this, but we don't want our names because some of them are still connected to some, some folks and positions, and they weren't trying to, you know, they're still on the up-and-coming, so to speak. And so, you know, uh, think about it in academic terms. They're still non-tenured, <laughs> all right? So uh, Bob was Mexican-American, African-American, Dave, uh, and Caribbean, and white, and Euro-American. 
American Kim. Um, and this was the, these are the folks that I talked about mainly in the paper and just their, their quotes. Uh, I'm using critical race theory, mainly Eduardo Bonilla Silva, who's one of my favorite critical race theorists, really looking at the issues of what he calls whiteout uh, and dominative narratives. Uh, and in this sense, we're talking looking at dominative narratives, theological narratives, and what crosses and passes as Christianity, uh, particularly what Sun Shan Ra describes as the white captivity of Western evangelicalism in his book, um, The Next Evangelicalism. Excellent read if you haven't read that. I referenced that several times in the paper. Uh, but Eduardo Bonilla Silva uh, obviously doesn't come at it from a faith-based perspective, but using it in the sense of really understanding what does white privilege, white power, and white supremacy look like uh, within those constructs. And when I say white power and white supremacy, I'm not talking about neo-Nazis. I'm not talking about the Klan members. I'm talking about well-intentioned, good folks, good white folks, but just not understanding the issues of multiculturalism, multi-ethnic identity, nor multicultural and race theory in their settings and context. Because as a society, as I always tell all of my students when we study these things, you know, we have moved away as a society from really saying the Klan can really have, I mean, if the Klan comes out right now and says, oh, a bunch of niggers and spicks, as a society, we'll be able to say, all right, we ain't going to stand for that. That's, that's madness. That's sickening. I don't, I don't want to deal with that. That's kind of societally speaking, right? Which kind of gives the implication sometimes people think we've moved on because we, you know, we're in a better spot. You know? uh, but I would say a lot of that madness, which is off to the side, just kind of bubbles and festers underneath, which is what makes it worse. Then, of course, uh, 20 years of youth ministry, youth work experience. I've been doing youth ministry for 18, but I've been doing youth work. Uh, I started just in the Boys and Girls Club working with kids uh, that I, was, I wanted to see help get out of gangs and transition out of tough and bad environments, and then that, of course that transformed into my own uh, spiritual transformation and leaving the nation of Islam and coming into Christianity. And so this, this is kind of the research that's, that's, that's backing that as well. I think maybe I'll, I'll pause here. Tommy, how long, how long do we got? Ten more minutes? Okay. And then we'll do Q&A? Or two Total. All right. So we'll, then we'll do Q&A right now. I'll we'll just pull these up. Okay. One of the struggles has been that the uh, urban youth worker is by tri-vocational. If you count the youth work as a vocation, the church pastor says, you are the youth guy, mm -hmm. you're the youth gal. Uh, but then they have their family, but they might be working two jobs, that kind of stuff. So to try to pull everybody together to work on this, yeah. you have the national you know, the network, youth network folks, primarily Caucasian, Northside Fresno. Yeah. And the language is, oh, y'all can come. Right. But for the African-American community, it's like, oh, yeah, no, because you need Thursdays at lunch, and we're working. And so an attempt was made to try to bridge that mm -hmm. uh, by meeting on Saturday morning. And initially, it was, well, the African-American folks could come, but the Caucasian folks, I don't want to give them a Saturday. Right. And that's been the struggle, yeah. the illustrated struggle of that. Mm -hmm. Just recently, it happened where there was really a balanced meeting um, they started working at, let's say we hosted. Yeah. So like I'd host at my church, but then I go with you and host at your church. Yeah. Meaning, in an attempt to bridge that gap. Absolutely, and those are good. And those are good things to happen because I think that if you will, for lack of a better word, that cross-pollinization, if you will, has to begin to emerge because the conversations that come out of that are going to be very healthy. Um, how come you do things like that? And I noticed you did this, and you were worshiping this way. You were thinking that way. What's what's going on? You know, um, I've found the best success. Speaking of solutions, and you mentioned some really good stuff here, uh, is to just get out and actually do something that's close and tight knit. One of the things I used to do with my rural, urban, and suburban group uh, was we would just go hike Half Dome. 
you know. Uh, and uh, if you've been to Half Dome before, you know, you know, it's a trek. You know, then you got to go up the rock and then come down, you know, and kids are complaining. And then, you know, then I had my rule cast. like, oh, I love it. This is great stuff. You know, I had a rock climber, you know, but it brought up and there was, it wasn't like it was clean cut. It was a lot of mess. But what happened out of those, those three, four, five years of interacting was the tough conversations started taking place. You know, I, you know, I had one student who just finally confessed, you know, I've never sat this long next to a black person. I've never sat this long next to a Mexican person. I always thought you were filling the blank. And then, of course, you know, those conversations take place. So that's one area, I think, of just doing group activities. And like you said, hosting and engagement. That's, that's a good thing. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. And and honestly, like one of the most frustrating things, like I was playing my iPod for while we were cooking. Yeah. And one of the African American kids that came in, he's like, he's like, oh, you're trying to play our music. That's so cute. Like, well, you're, you know what I mean? Like trying to, and he like was real. And I go, actually, I didn't know it was your music. Cause it's actually my music. And I'm playing because I like it. You know, like, I want to play it for you. I, and I mean, I like kind of get mad and see that's kind of like, I'm not, I'm supposed to be like, you know, <laughs> Right, right. My music, and I'm like, oh, it's your, you know. So uh, my question is, like, what, this, what I really liked about what you wrote here was, like, what do we do with these good intentions that we have? Yeah. We take kids to skid row, yeah. and we're trying to expose them, and then yet it just becomes, I feel like, even more divisive sometimes. Yeah. You try to bring groups together, and you get everybody in the same room, and then nobody wants to talk to each other. It's just really uncomfortable, and you're like, when are we done here? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that is the ugliness of what we're talking about, because I think racism has, has been, been allowed, if you will, to fester and to really run like a wildfire in this country for. I mean, we've never really had a hard discussion about the issue of racism in this country. Most people, you know, will say, oh, let's just not even talk about it. And it's like, yeah, but we don't stop talking about the Holocaust. And we don't stop talking about World War II. And we dang sure don't stop talking about 9-11, these atrocities that happen, right? Um, so how do we engage these issues in areas? Well, and part of that is the understanding. And you know, how do you engage leadership and power? Well, it's like what Sunshine Rod, a lot of the Richard Twist, you know, really argue that say, you know, if you're going to be a white person in urban multicultural ministry, really challenge yourself to sit under the authority and leadership of somebody of an ethnic minority descent in whatever you know, capacity, to really challenge yourself to say, okay, this is how to, you know, to follow, rather than coming in a position of power, I'm not telling you that you got to do this, but I'm just saying some of the successes I've seen uh, is, is been, in, been, been in those situations where an ethnic minority, you know, is able to do that. At the same time, there is a tension that exists that a lot of ethnic minorities feel like, well, I always have to be the teacher and the instructor to white people. Why, why is that placed on me? You know, I had a student, you know, just three years ago, you know, in one of my classes, you know, she was Latina. She's like, I'm tired of instructing white people. You need to go out and understand some of this stuff on your own. And again, some of the stuff, but it is a messy thing, and I think part of that is doing what you're doing, 
thorough debriefing of, of what's going on. And some of these times, it just it takes a while. In North Park, we do this, a little something called a Sankofa trip. And we do it at the seminary level, we do it at the student level, and we do it at the faculty staff level. And what that is is essentially a week-long trip in a bus from Chicago to the South, looking at places of the Underground Railroad, slavery institutions, and then actually having those conversations. But there's about six months prep work to that. So you have to pair up with somebody who's a different ethnic background than you and talk with them, you know, meet with them throughout you know, that time period and actually have those hard conversations. It's a lot of work. But what is produced uh, in the end of it is, is, is deep conversations. And I've tried that a couple of times with youth groups, but with very, very small groups, not large groups. And I'm talking, when I say small, eight, seven, you know, groups, because you try to get 15, 20, it turns into a tourist attraction. And, and that's, yeah, I feel like that's a lot of times what happens. It's like, oh, this is cute. Why right. Learn? Right. Like, you know? Absolutely. And that's, not, and that's not what I want. I want to partner together, but sometimes it's just, because that's good. I think having... I think even like it's that day in the homeless now you're just making me think. I think about that day in the homeless shelter, there's been like two of us coordinating at the same time in the room. Yeah. And, like a different like racial background that we would like it would have looked like more like a partnership from the leadership. And yeah. It would be more of a partnership with everybody. Yeah. But it's messy stuff. I will say that it is. It's messy stuff, and it's, it's engagement. I have become. I see your hand. I know. I got you. I have in the in the in the, as I as I'm moving along, I've really pared down a lot. I used to be this. You know, back in the day, I used to be this youth guy. Like, oh, I'm bringing 100 kids to camp. Now I'm like, no, I'm just glad I brought four. All right. Because that's all I can really give myself to as, as a mentor. I can't spread myself out more than that. And really, too, that I can really engage with on a lifelong basis, right? Um, and we're having those hard conversations. The Latino guys that I was working with are like, how come I'm good enough to clean dishes and mow your yard, but I, I still can't you know, be a citizen? I can't sit, sit at the same table. I didn't, I, I didn't have too much, too many answers for that. Because here's the thing, I, gotta, I even have a disconnect because I have my paper. I was, I was born in the United States. So I had to recognize that and say, this is where the road ends for me. I'll listen to you and I'll help you as much as I can, but it's engaging in that. But it, it is messy stuff. Yes, ma'am. I was just looking at the list of themes. Yes. And I was wondering, um, I, I was like, I think that's true to the youth ministry educators at um, youth ministry educators of color at yes. evangelical Christian organizations or universities and colleges or something. I just wondered what you thought about that observation. Yes, ma'am. I mean, that's all I can say. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I can tell you all kinds of stories um, from ethnic minority faculty and members. You know, our turnaround rate in North Park, I'll just be transparent, it's two and a half years for ethnic minority faculty. Um, that's, that's the turnaround rate. I mean, we've had about easily anywhere between 12 and 15 ethnic minority staff come through in the last four years of our, our institution and they leave real quick going on to places at the University of Chicago, or, you know, um, what is it, the um, historically black colleges and universities, you know, they just go off, you know, to that as well. Um, and so that's kind of what I mean, I'm even thinking about. Somebody told me the other day, you know, they said, you know, it, about either North Park or any evangelical Christian school, they're either going to be revolutionary in what we do in the next, in the, here in the coming 21st century, or they're going to be launching pads for people like yourself, you know, they're going to go off and do this thing. So it's something that I wrestle with, but absolutely, no, these pop up a lot. Objects, you become tokenized. You know, you become stores. I mean, I'm, you know, and right now I'm trying to raise money, so I, I know the evils, the wiles of, of raising money is one of the reasons why I got out of nonprofit work. I couldn't take it anymore when somebody from wherever would say, I'll write you a check, Dan, for eighty or $90,000, as long as you can keep these kids out of my neighborhood. 
I, I just couldn't do that anymore. I couldn't pimp kids up on stage anymore and say, look at these kids, they came from a crack family. But I see that even with me now. Now the school's like, oh, we got a, we got a, we got a black faculty member. He's bald and he's great and he's got all these gangs. You know, I still haven't told too many people my own. I, I, I hesitate, if you will, telling people my, even my testimony because I've seen what it's done in other what we call TWI, traditionally white institutions, uh, you know, because it gets pimped. We're going to put you in the North Park. We're going to put you in this thing. I mean, even when I was at Fuller, you know, I helped them raise the money for that library that they got now. I was in films and all this stuff. And I look back, I'm like, man, I feel kind of used, man. I, that, wait a minute. And that was challenging for me. And it's challenging for me now as a faculty member, especially trying to, you know, go up for tenure and review here and next year. I'm like, I... How do I do the song and dance <laughs> so I can get to say what I really want to say? But even then, I mean, uh, at, uh, what was it, uh, Michael, um, oh, what is his name? De La Torre, Michael De La Torre, you know, renowned talking about these issues. And, you know, he was tenured and got fired, you know, over the issues of race and ethnicity at his university and stuff. So it's not like that protects a lot of it either. <laughs> All right. I want to thank Dan for his time and presentation today. Thank you. This, this is my contact information. I'm on Twitter and everything. And uh, thank you for your time and questions and insight. The article is up. I got cards.